This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. I'm Rachel from the Kids Cascade Hiker Podcast. My sister isn't here, but her name is Reggie, also from the Kids Cascade Hiker Podcast. And this is my dad. All right. Well, uh, I just want to say before we get started, guys, that uh, guys and gals, this is, uh, this is, this is huge. I, honestly, I... Um, I had, uh, I don't know, the case of the, gosh, there's a syndrome. Somebody call it out if they know what it is. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so the imposter syndrome. Um, and it's kind of like, wow, you know, people are really going to want to come out. And I know that, that people are here for the author as well. But it's just like, wow, this is the Cascade Hiker Podcast event. And I just want to say thank you guys for coming out and supporting me and the author, uh, Lauren Danner and stuff. Because, <clears throat> honestly, uh, it's a big deal. It's like, wow, people actually want to come hear us speak. So <laughs> I understand her, but yeah, so thank you. Thank you. But this is a really cool discussion, and I've read most of the book. <clears throat> um, and uh, so, um, and I know some people in here have, uh, have, have heard her speak before. And so uh, it's, it, she's an amazing author. Lauren Danner, why don't you come up? The cool thing is, uh, you know how the book ends, so if you didn't read all of it, not that big a deal. Yeah. There's, a, there's a park, spoiler alert. Oh, the first thing I want to point out is that Lauren does not have a drink. Does anybody, can somebody buy her a drink? Her husband didn't even buy her one. He tried. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. So if you want to sit down, you can. Okay. We don't, we don't want you to fall over. All right, so I had to. I, did, I normally don't do this, but I did uh, type out my questions ahead of time because, uh, well, I didn't want to screw up in front of all of you guys. <laughs> I said this at my last live event, but normally I record this at home in my bed, naked. Um, <laughs> well, in my underwear. All right, so, but uh, and, and so when I screw up, I can uh, you know I can go back and edit all that, right? So, um, and also I should note that uh, I want to say thanks to my wife this weekend for helping out and. She's been doing a lot of the heavy lifting. I, I got a uh, vasectomy on Friday, and uh, what's funny, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I was talking to a gal that uh, I work side by side with. She works for Coca-Cola, and, uh, and I told her, I said, yeah, she, she's a hiker, and she, she listens to the podcast. She said, oh, hey, live event. She's not here, of course. She's not that big of a fan, but uh, she said, she said, hey, you know, I hope you have a good time Saturday or Sunday at your show. I said, yeah, well, I'm getting a hysterectomy, and so uh, you know, I, like, it just came out. You know, I was like, oh, crap. Well, I, did, I didn't get that, but uh, anyway, so, so we'll get started here. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming on the Cascade Hiker Podcast. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, my name's Lauren Danner, and I'm from Olympia, Washington. Right on, Olympia, Washington. <clears throat> well, let's get started here. Um, 
First off, I, I got to ask this question. Is it possible to describe the book in two sentences? Uh, yeah. A history of how North Cascades National Park came to be and a really good political story. I told my wife there's no way she could do that. <laughs> this is actually uh, a really good book to own and, and reference and look at and read. But, uh, but it is kind of a, a tough read. I, 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 was, I was struggling but because there's so much packed in there. I mean, it's just like there is so much information. But I encourage those that haven't purchased one to, to get one because it really is one that uh, a lot of books I, I get and I, I, the authors like the Beer Hiking Northwest book. Um, <laughs> you know, I put them on my shelf and I don't ever look at them again. Yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Shout out to Brandon back there. Just kidding. I'm feeling a little bit nervous, so I'm shaking. <laughs> he is. This is, uh, this is her 40th event this year. So she's, uh, she's, she's real good at this. <laughs> All right, so you've written this book, Crown Jewel Wilderness, about the, uh, I don't know, sort of more, uh, formation of the North Cascades National Park. Take us back 50 years. What was the North Cascades like then? What kind of activities were going on back then? Sure. So, uh, well, 50 years ago is when the park was created, but if we go back maybe 15 years before that to the mid-1950s to the 1940s, um, that was all Forest Service land, as most of the Cascades were. And so the, the Forest Service had managed the North Cascades since 1897, um, and it was all national forests. So national forests are um, our, our country's way of conserving some of our natural resources, right? We, that's how America got its fantastic wealth, is through the ex exploitation of natural resources or extraction of resources, logging, minerals, oil and gas, and all that. And so the North Cascades were uh, forests, mostly. Some mining as well. Um, there's definitely been a few mines that have been pretty successful in the North Cascades. But in the mid-1950s, that was all national forest land. And most of it was managed for multiple use. And that's what the Forest Service does, manages its public lands for multiple uses. And that can include things like timber production, of course, watershed protection, uh, game habitat, livestock grazing, um, mineral development, and also you know, recreation to a certain extent. So the North Cascades were used for recreation in the mid-century, um, but they were managed for these multiple uses. And what happened was that in the mid-50s, as the population of the Pacific Northwest exploded after World War II, Many of the people who came in were interested in seeing those mountains up close, and when they got out there, they, they found a lot of clear cuts and mud and slash piles, and they became concerned about how these lands were being managed. Um, the irony of it is that the same people who were coming in to this area at that time all wanted uh, what I think of as the, the American dream, right? They wanted a single family home. They wanted a car in the driveway. Well, by the time this all started in the 50s, those homes were made of wood, of course, all our suburbs around Seattle and Bellevue and Bellingham. Um, and that wood increasingly came from the national forests. And so up until World War II, the national forests, including the North Cascades, were mostly managed for custodial reasons. They just kept the trees. They counted them. They marked them out. But they, there wasn't a lot of national forest logging at that point. Washington has a huge private timber industry, and it was cutting private timberland. But after World War II, a lot of the Washington's private timberland was completely cut over, and there was a demand for national forest timber. So these people who are flooding in who want to live in these houses, their houses are being built of national forest timber. And at the same time, 
they want the Forest Service to preserve these areas for recreation. So it was a really difficult situation right then for the Forest Service. Well, talk about a little bit about, uh, you know, why people became interested. I mean, this is before roads, before, you know, before all of that. What about the regular population? Why, why did they become interested in North Cascades as being a protected national park? So when the, the, it all really kind of started at Glacier Peak, actually. Um, in, when, when the Forest Service was uh, thinking about sort of how to handle this um, contradiction between logging the forest and also setting aside parts of the forest for recreation, it had to, it had to figure out what to do with areas that it had already set aside for recreation. One of those areas was Glacier Peak. Um, about about mm, a million acres in the North Cascades had already been set aside for recreation for what the Forest Service called primitive areas. At Glacier Peak, they called it the Glacier Peak Limited Area. And it was an area set aside for recreation. So the idea from the Forest Service was you could go in there under your own power or on horseback and enjoy um, sort of a vignette of primitive America, kind of like what America looked like before Euro-American westward expansion, a definition, by the way, that completely ignores the fact that indigenous peoples had used those areas for millennia before. But that, that was sort of the Forest Service approach. And so when this pressure started um, to you know, build all these houses and start cutting this timber, as people went out into these areas, they kept seeing these clear cuts. They were not happy. The Forest Service said, OK. We're going to handle this by revisiting these limited areas, and we're going to re—we're going to make these boundaries firm so that we know what's available for multiple use and what's available for recreation. Um, and so it went in to do that. And one of the very first places it looked at was Glacier Peak. So when some of these folks, especially in the Seattle area, got wind that the Forest Service was going to revisit the boundaries of these areas they started saying, oh, we better be part of this process. The, the biggest participant at that time was the Mountaineers. They're the oldest outdoor recreation group in Washington. And even though in the 50s they were mostly still focused on outings and outdoor education, they did have a conservation committee. And that conservation committee sort of asked its members, like, okay, if you're out this summer, go to Glacier Peak, take some pictures, write reports, and get back to us on what these boundaries should be. Because we want to work on your with media. the forest. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, put it in the Mountaineers <laughs> annual, really. Um, so tell us what you think these boundaries should be or what's important. And what happened was in the summer of 1955, three backpackers took a trip up Glacier Peak. And they went up Lake Chelan, up Railroad Creek, over Cloudy Pass, over Swaddle Pass, down Agnes Creek, and down to Stahican. And when they got to Stahican, they were sitting on the dock waiting for the Down Lake Ferry. They had their backpacks and their ice axes. And this woman comes up to them, and she says, you know, where you been? And they told her, and they told her they're members of the Mountaineers. And she says, oh, you need to meet my husband. Well, her husband turns out to be a political science professor who owns a cabin in Stahican. And he's really concerned because the Forest Service is planning a timber sale in the Stahican Valley. And he thinks the valley should be preserved as part of this Glacier Peak area. So they, they connect, and that's kind of how this all gets off the ground. It all circles around what's going to happen with Glacier Peak. Wow. And uh, I don't know if I'm, I can't remember exactly if I'm jumping ahead, but uh, who, can you talk a little bit about the first person that really spearheaded um, just that whole area from Highway 2 north? For the activism, you mean? Yeah. Uh, no, uh, the person that, yeah, that, that originally, like, back in, I don't oh. know, was it was 1900-something? Sure. So the first, um, the first park proposal up in the North Cascades was actually 1892, but it was really about preserving game habitat around Lake Chelan because the mountain goats 
and the um, uh, mountain lions or the cougars and uh, um, the deer were being overhunted. And so right at the turn of the century, a lot of, um, a lot of the wildlife conservation groups are founded then, Audubon, but the Boone and Crockett Club was, was interested in the North Cascade. So they said, oh, we should make it a national park. But they were more thinking like a game reserve. But in 1906, um, this guy, he was an artist from Canada. Um, he had come down to uh, the North Cascades because his doctor told him it would be good for his lungs. He was sort of uh, sickly, you know. And he came and he, paint, he, he painted all around the Stahican area. And he sort of decided, like, this should be a national park. Like, it's so beautiful, it should be a national park. Um, and so he started promoting it as such. And, and it was great timing on his part because... America itself was going was starting what it called this the Sea America First movement. This idea that instead of going to Europe, taking a ship to Europe and spending all your hard-earned dollars there, with World War II like sort of or World War One, excuse me, lo looming on the horizon, keep your dollars in America. See the great, the magnificent scenery that we have. And so uh, the artist's name was Julian Itter, and he decided to sort of kind of glom on to that See America First movement. And so he is the one who really um, kind of got it started. It didn't really go anywhere because Chelan, the town of Chelan, and the Stehekin Valley were very dependent on mining at that time. And there was still mine, uh, there was still sil galena ore um, being brought out of Horseshoe Basin in the Stehekin Valley. And so when you go up there and all those mine shafts are up there, that's that's from that era. And so the, they, the people who lived in the area really felt like the extraction of natural resources was more um, likely to be economically beneficial than tourism. We know how that turned out. Yeah, it's, it's crazy reading the book and hearing about all these places, you know, like Horseshoe Basin and, um, you know, just Tahikin in general. I mean, you know, people that don't hike, they don't even know what Tahikin is. I know you guys are familiar with that. You're like, oh, yeah, well, just that's Tahikin. And people are like, where? You know, where is that? You know, it's actually a pretty cool place. But, uh, yeah, so reading the book, that was one, one thing that I got out of it was, uh, you know, just to hear about those places in the early 1900s, you know, Glacier Peak. You know, how cool would that have been to see what it looked like back then? But uh, so there was – so, you know, jumping back then to what we were talking about before, there was just a handful of people that were upset about the Forest Service, the way they were managing the North Cascades. How did that turn into a movement? Uh that's a great question. The, um, so you had these three members of the Mountaineers who'd taken this backpacking trip, and now they were connected with this political science professor, a guy named Grant McConnell. And so Grant McConnell was, um, he taught at Berkeley. And he, in the, so in the fall of 1955, um, as I said, he's a political science professor, but he specialized in conservation. And he really started to feel like this Glacier Peak issue could be the beginning of a national movement. He got the sense that there was a growing national sentiment for wilderness preservation. And so he wanted um, to, to sort of uh, exploit that if he could. So he goes back to Berkeley that fall, and he calls up the new executive director of the Sierra Club, a guy named David Brower. And he invites Brower to give a guest lecture in his political science class about the role of interest groups in conservation. But it's a total ploy, because what McConnell really wants is for the Sierra Club to get involved. So after Brower guest lectures at his class, McConnell takes it back to his office, and he spreads out these pictures of Glacier Peak. And he says, this is the next big wilderness issue, and the Sierra Club should be involved. And David Brower looks at those pictures. He's been on the job less than two years at this point. He looks at those pictures, he said, you're right, we should. And so in the fall of 1955, 
the Sierra Club is involved in the North Cascades. And because, they, because the club has that national experience, it can leverage that growing movement. And so the Sierra Club gets involved, they start promoting the North Cascades, they, they do note cards and brochures and posters, they hold events, they make a movie in 1958 to publicize the North Cascades. You can still uh, find it on YouTube, it's called The Wilderness Alps of Stahican, it's a great period piece. Um, but they do all this stuff. And in the meantime, what's happening in Seattle is that there's um, people are sort of coalescing into another organization. Um, at, uh, in, in after the Forest Service publicizes its proposed boundaries for Glacier Peak in 1957, um, the people who are outdoor recreationists in the Seattle region are really concerned. They don't like these boundaries. They, they realize that Glacier Peak, the that will be preserved is mostly above tree line. It's mostly rock and ice and stringer sands. They don't like that. They want, nobody wants the hike to a clear cut to get to the high country, right? So they want to be able to preserve those forested valleys. So they, they call an emergency meeting after the Forest Service um, releases its proposed boundaries for Glacier Peak. They meet in Portland. There's like two dozen of them, just to give you an idea, like maybe a third of the people here today. Um, and they decide to form a new group dedicated to fighting for wilderness preservation in the North Cascades. They call themselves the North Cascades Conservation Council, and they, that immediately gets shortened to N3C. Um, and I always think it's interesting that they choose that name, the North Cascades Conservation Council, not the Glacier Peak Conservation Council. So they're kind of putting everyone on notice. We want the whole North Cascades preserved as wilderness. And in fact, that's what they spend the next you know, 12, 15 years uh, doing. So they form this group, and that group sort of takes the lead on the local um, issue. They do a lot of media, they do meetings, they show up for hearings, they do brochures, and the Sierra Club kind of handles the national part of the campaign. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it really is. Uh, there's so many ins and outs of this story. I mean, there, you know, it, it just, I, I don't know. It, reading it, I was just like, wow, I mean, it, where do you go? I, I tell you, the, the, I was sitting there trying to figure out these questions, and I had read this on a vacation we went on this summer, and the part that I did read. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I had these, and I folded the page. I didn't have a, a highlighter. And I went back, and I was like, okay, now I got to figure out, this is about a month ago. I was like, okay, now I got to figure out uh, what to ask Lauren. And I looked at all these fold marks. And I'm like, oh my gosh, literally almost every page, you know, you look through it. Actually, my book's right over here, but it's just like fold mark, fold mark. And I went back, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to ask like, 400 questions. Seriously, it was, it was kind of funny. But, um, so that being said, reading your book, I noticed that uh, it sort of has two parts, right? So I'm going to ask you, I don't know, a two-part question here, and maybe you could uh, tie it all together. The first centers on my favorite mountain, Glacier Peak, which it is. The second part is about the North Cascades becoming a national issue that's re uh, resolved in Washington, D.C., how did that all come about? I didn't know Glacier Peak was your favorite mountain. It is, yeah. Uh, so, um, so I always think of Glacier Peak as kind of Act One in the North Cascades because it's it's when outdoor recreationists get together and they start becoming conservationists. They start speaking with one voice. They start demanding policy change. And what happens is that after the Forest Service releases those initial um, boundaries for Glacier Peak, and then the North Cascades Conservation Council forms, the um, uh, they start they. They work with the Sierra Club and they're promoting it. And then a few months after that, the Forest Service releases its final boundaries for Glacier Peak. And it's a disaster from the conservationist point of view. It's 
uh, conservationists immediately call it a starfish wilderness or a wilderness on the rocks because the lines followed tree line and they just kept in the rock and ice and they left out all the trees. So the conservationists were really upset about this and they start calling their elected officials and demanding change. And the elected officials go to the Secretary of Agriculture, the Forest Service is in the Agriculture Department, and they demand, they say, you know, I have a lot of really unhappy constituents here. Um, and the Secretary of Agriculture overrides the local Forest Service office and adds back in areas that the local Forest Service office was leaving out. And just to give you an example, um, the, the final boundaries for Glacier Peak that the, that the Regional Forest Service Office wanted would have completely eliminated the Seattle River to Seattle Pass. So the boundary went all the way up wow. the river to the pass and then all the way back down the other side at Treeline. So that entire watershed would have been out. The White Chuck River was out. The Chihuahua was out. Most of Agnes Creek was out. So that is why conservationists were so upset. They just they didn't see that. And the Secretary of Agriculture basically told the regional forester, you know, this is the wilderness areas that the Forest Service was trying to set up. This is before the Wilderness Act. This is, uh, you know, almost 10 years before the Wilderness Act. So they were just administrative. They could be undone. And the Agriculture Secretary says, um, you know, don't worry. We can, if, if we decide we need that timber, we could revisit the boundaries. So, so they get a bigger Glacier Peak wilderness um, that is uh, more what they want. And then so I always think of that as the end of Act One, like Glacier Peak, success, conservationist victory. And for the Forest Service, it's really kind of a warning, right? Because the Forest Service has to figure out how to incorporate wilderness preservation into its multiple-use paradigm. And it doesn't do it in the North Cascades, and it costs the agency in the end. So the second act, and the second part of that question is sort of like, how does it become a national issue? Well, arguably, you know, Glacier Peak is sort of at the, at least at the federal level already. But what happens is um, in 1960, John F. Kennedy is elected president, and he brings with him Stuart Udall as his interior secretary. And Stuart Udall, is this, he's a former Arizona congressman. He's a totally enthusiastic outdoorsman. And he recognizes that there is exploding demand for recreation on federal lands. So um, the example I often provide is in 1943, at the height of World War II, there were the entire national park system received 7 million visits. In 1961, when Stuart Udall was sworn into office, the entire National Park Service received 72 million visits. Oh, wow. So a tenfold increase in just a little over 15 years. And Stuart Udall really believes that the way to address this is by adding more national parks, like make more areas national parks, and that will provide more recreation lands. And so he, he, he works out a deal with the Secretary of Agriculture, because of course the Forest Service manages a lot of these lands as well. And historically, the Forest Service and the Park Service are rivals. And so he works out a deal um, in the North Cascades where they're going to conduct a joint study between the Interior Department and the Agriculture Department to determine the highest and best use of the North Cascades. They appoint this five-member joint study team. It's got two members from Agriculture, two members from Interior, and for the chair, they choose this guy, his name's Ed Crafts, and he's a career Forest Service official, right? He spent his entire mm -hmm. career in the Forest Service. 
but 10 months earlier, he'd been passed over for chief of the Forest Service, and he'd gone to work for Stuart Udall in the Department of the Interior (laughs) to work on recreation. And so when that happens, you know, so the the study team conducts the study. It takes three years. But during that time, a couple things happen that kind of make, bring the North Cascades ever higher into the national consciousness. And in the meantime, you know, the Sierra Club's doing its work, the North Cascades Conservation Council's doing its work, and Stuart Udall's now interested in this because he wants more national parks. Well, here's an opportunity for a huge new national park to provide more recreation land. And so once the federal government gets interested, um, it, it starts to become a national issue. When the study team does its uh, report, um, Scoop Jackson, who was Washington's junior senator at the time, was the chair of the Senate Interior Committee. And that was also really good for conservationists because any bill about the North Cascades was going to have to go through that committee. And so having Scoop Jackson there was potentially a good thing. No one really knew how he felt about the North Cascades, but he was in a good situation. And so that's kind of moved it onto the national stage. You're talking about Henry M. Jackson, right? Henry M. Yeah. Jackson. So we all, hiker, most hikers yes. know that name because of the wilderness is yes. named after him, right? Um, all right, so uh, you know it's kind of hard to talk about maps on a podcast. We are live, so I will point out that uh, that there are some maps that are going to be displayed um, that are in the book, of course. Um, but for those listening at home, uh, it is uh, such an important part of the story. That being said, the map of North Cascades today looks like a jigsaw puzzle with a lot of different designations, meaning Forest Service or National mm-hmm. Park, that kind of thing. Uh, it seems very complicated. Why is that? It is complicated, right? If you, I'm, you, Probably everybody in this room has a topographical map of the North Cascades, and it really does look like a sort of a patchwork quilt of land designations. Um, that started with North Cascades National Park. So when the park was created in 1968, the legislation that created the park um, was very much compromised legislation. You know, I, I spent a lot of time talking about conservationists, but a lot of people were interested in what was happening up there, and not everybody supported it, right? So the mining industry was very opposed to a national park. The timber industry was opposed to a national park. Many local chambers of commerce were opposed. They were worried about the economic impact that a national park might have. Um, some politicians were opposed. It was on and on and on. So. When, when the bill was put together, um, and it was really put together by Scoop Jackson kind of in the background, it very much was a compromise bill. And you see that compromise on the ground in the North Cascades. So what we ended up with here was a two-unit national park, right? We have the northern unit generally around the Pickett Range, and we have the southern unit generally around the El Dorado Peaks. It's bisected by the Ross Lake National Recreation Area, and that was a compromise for the state of Washington, which insisted on managing and maintaining the North Cascades Highway, and for Seattle City Light, which runs the Skagit Hydroelectric Project and wanted to make sure it could continue to run its dams the way that it saw fit. So that, so Ross Lake was a compromise. Then at the southern end, we have the Lake Chelan National Recreation Area. That's another compromise because many people in Stahican did not like the idea of living inside national park boundaries. And so the uses or the rules are slightly more flexible in a national recreation area, and so that was created. So we have those four units, right? They're about 685,000 acres. They're managed by the Park Service. But the bill also created the Pesaten Wilderness, right? 530,000 acres to the east, managed by the Forest Service. It added 10,000 acres to the Glacier Peak Wilderness, which had become a statutory wilderness, in other words, a designated wilderness, 
when the Wilderness Act had passed in 1964. So it added 10,000 acres to Glacier Peak. That's managed by the Forest Service. So the, and the bill also required the agencies to work together on managing uh, for wilderness and recreation. And then in the ensuing years, we've had the wilderness, the smaller wilderness areas added around the periphery, right? Um, including the Henry M. Jackson in 1984, and then, um, uh, so a bunch of them were added in 1984, and then again in 1988, and most recently Wild Sky in 2014, I believe. Um, and that's all part of two national forests. So on the east side, we have our Okanagan Wenatchee National Forest. Um, it's four million acres. One third of it is designated wilderness, and it gets about two million recreation visits a year. And then on the west side, we have our own beloved Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. Um, it is one and three quarter million acres. Almost half of it is statutory wilderness. That's an enormous percentage. Yeah. And it gets more than five million recreation visits a year. So it's really one of the most visited national forests in the country for recreation, always in the top tier three. And that's sort of how that happened. You know, you just have this, this crazy land thing. And, you know, I always think, like, if you're standing on top of McGregor Mountain in the Stegan Valley or, you know, you're up on Sock Mountain, you're not really thinking, am I in a national forest, a national park, a national recreation area, a wilderness? Is it designated? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like, can I take my dog? You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's good. So yeah. I, think, I think that that's, I mean, it is, when you look at the map, it can be sort of intimidating, but the map is really um, a, an image, an illustration of the contested history of this land. And, and it's an indication that these, these things are always um, resolved by negotiation. They're always a compromise. Our public lands are managed that way. No, that, that, I mean, that's just awesome to hear. And it's funny that, uh, you know, we're sitting here talking and we're at the live show. And one of the benefits of being at the live show is that, uh, you know, we can talk before the show as well. And I know Monica's here and she was just on Sock Mountain today. She's probably looking at that thing saying, where, uh, you know, exactly that whole thing, right? So I saw, I saw she was laughing about that. Um, and, and also to point out, too, uh, somebody here was on the Pacific Northwest Trail today. Who was that? I forget now. I talked to so many people anyway. They were on uh, Brandon, Brandon Freilich. Yeah, was on the Pacific Northwest Trail today. Anyway, uh, it's just kind of fun in the live events to be able to tie all that together, uh, especially with this uh, story. Uh, and Scoop Jackson, first, uh, first guy to have a, a trail name. Like, <laughs> possibly. It's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, in the book, you argue that the history of the North Cascades is more than the story of how this national park came to be established. Can you describe how the North Cascades story fits into what was going on nationally at the time? Why should people today care about this history? So, you know, I worked on this book for a long time, um, about six years full-time, but 15 years, 16 years overall. And during that time, you know, I was so focused on the North Cascades, and, and one of the reasons I wrote Hold on, you said you worked on this book for 15 years? Yeah, more or less. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Sorry, I that's, that's, just wanted to point that out. That's, that's awesome. I know. I, was, I started it right after when my daughter was, um, like, one, and she, she went to college this year, so. Wow. Yeah, she's probably really happy it's done. Um, so, uh, so she can now read it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, somehow I don't think she will. I don't know. It's just a guess. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, you got to give me the question again. No, I totally forgot yeah. it. Yeah, it's <laughs> so sorry. I do that. Oh, what the, the significance. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. So, so I started, I started <laughs> this book because, um, I was really, it's, it's kind of started in graduate school, like as a project, but, 
But I was really struck when I started researching the North Cascades that there were so many books about Olympic. There are so many books about Mount Rainier. And there was nothing about this history. And it was so fascinating to me. Um, I, I just The more I read, the more I wanted to know. And that's really what got me started. So at first, the first several years, I was really like, ooh, the North Cascades. Like, this is such a unique story. And it is unique, but it's also really part of what's happening at the time. And I argue that the North Cascades helped launch the modern environmental movement in the Pacific Northwest. It did. It has so many interesting things about it. Um, not only the crazy land designation that we ended up with, that sort of patchwork quilt, but the first paid environmental lobbyist outside of Washington, D.C., was hired to work on the North Cascades. I mean, just think about how many environmental lobbyists wow. are out there now. I mean, that's amazing. And he was hired in 1961. So even just this is before the Wilderness Act. This is we always think of the environmental movement as something that sort of you know launches in the 60s and then sort of reaches its fruition in the 70s with the passage of you know Clean Water, Clean Air, Endangered Species Act. But really, it starts in the 50s with people getting involved at the local level because they're concerned about what they're seeing on their public lands, and they slowly band together and start you know, forming these groups and, and the groups start to get political and they get political help and they figure out the political process and they leverage it. And so the North Cascades is just, it's one example of how that's happening across the country. We see it in other places. Um, in the Northwest, you know, not only was the North Cascades Conservation Council working for a park in the North Cascades and to protect all the wilderness there, they were also working on Alpine lakes in the late 50s. They were working on cougar lakes. They were working on all these other things that we now just feel like, oh, I hope I get a permit, you know. <laughs> but, but this stuff is this is this took a really long time to make happen, and it's part of a national movement towards wilderness preservation. And so, one of the other ways that the North Cascades really fits in with that is, the park was created in 1968. But the Wilderness Act passed in 1964. It had taken eight years to pass the Wilderness Act. There was one very obstructionist um, congressman from Colorado who held it up for eight years. Uh, and so when that act finally passed, the, the national sentiment for wilderness preservation was, was concrete. It was very well established by then. And by passing the Wilderness Act, it was kind of this acknowledgment that it was wilderness preservation was not sort of like something that some fringe element of American society wanted, but that tens of millions of people believe that wilderness should be preserved not for what economic value it might provide, but for its intrinsic value, for just the value it had to exist. That is an enormous shift in American environmental thinking, and the North Cascades really contributed to that and then benefited from that shift as well. And that was one of the issues that got people thinking about wilderness and why it mattered. So I think, so that's the, an that's the answer, sort of the national significance. But today, why do I think, it, I mean, it matters on so many levels today. We could just sort of say it matters because this is one of the largest intact wilderness is remaining in the lower 48 and we have that because of the activism of the 50s and 60s that's huge because and uh, especially today when we're seeing um, so many areas on really right outside national parks right outside wilderness under attack uh, for more extractive extraction of resources I think that's that's one of the real significant issues today well you're talking about the 50s and 60s and nobody here was even alive back then oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just kidding. <laughs> uh, my own dad's here, and you know, he <laughs> I'm thankful that you were alive in the '50s, pops. Way to uh. read the crowd, Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> uh. 
All right, so uh, what are some of the challenges facing the North Cascades today? That's, that's an issue for all of us, right? Should I just turn that? I could just hand the mic out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think the, there are um, some big challenges that the North Cascades are facing. And I, I think one uh, is not just the North Cascades, but every national park and all of our public lands. And the, the bigger one is climate change, is the effects of climate change and how we're going to adapt to that. Um, we're not going to be able to stop it. So how are we going to adapt in these areas um, how we manage these places. So in, in the North Cascades, um, and actually in all national parks, a report came out a couple of weeks ago that talks about how climate change in the national parks is um, more is like almost twice as evident or twice as, um, I'm not getting into the word, sort of impactful as anywhere else, or it's happening twice as fast as anywhere else because these areas are generally pretty pristine, um, and so the impact of climate change is felt more severely, more quickly. So I just read something that says in um, Denali National Park, the average temperature has gone up seven degrees Fahrenheit in the last 50 years. So that's just one example. So climate change in the, in the parks is going to be huge. And in the North Cascades, it's big because the North Cascades really depends on snowpack, right? So we depend on snowpack for lots of things besides recreation. We have all the water in the reservoirs that makes the dams work, that brings electricity down to Seattle. Um, it also, um, the, the, as, as the glaciers thin and melt, we have less water available when we expect it. So when we don't have water stored as snow and it's coming down uh, from these glaciers and in these streams at different times of year, then it's, it's available at different times. It's not as predictable. There's less of it. That's one issue. The other issue is sort of like there's the ice issue and then there's the fire issue, right? So as temperatures rise, um, and I think the mean temperature in the North Cascades has gone up five degrees since 1950 above, uh, I think it's, and tree line has gone up something 600 feet maybe is higher. Tree line is 600 feet higher today than it was in 1950. Um, so those all create issues as well, right? So we have, um, we have hotter temperatures, which means that when things catch on fire, as we all know all too well, they burn hotter, they burn longer, the fires are more severe, they're bigger. And so those are some issues with climate change. And I, I think the North Cascades is really feeling that. And I just even talking to people here um, and out in, in on the trail, you hear people's, they have personal experience with that. You see it. You know, this stream was always running, and it's not. I never saw that animal here, and now I see it all the time. So that's one. I think that's the big one. Um, and then another, the another big issue in the North Cascades is uh, the reintroduction of native wildlife. Uh, so we have we, we now have the mountain goats, right? Well, we had mountain goats, but mm. mountain goats have been helicoptered over from Olympic National Park. And it's uh, some of my favorite pictures of the year: the helicopters dangling from the from the or the, uh, the goats dangling from the, like their blindfolds on. It's great. Um, <laughs> and then they land and they just take off. Like, oh, we're here. Um, so that's uh, so the introduction of the goats is a really good one, but the grizzly is much more controversial, right? So we're. Um, there is an environmental impact statement that we're waiting to hear the final recommendation by the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service about restoring the grizzly to its native habitat in the North Cascades. Um, grizzly restoration has actually sort of been talked about since the 80s, but most of it has been concentrated in the Northern Rockies. Uh, that is where the science has been. That's where the funding has been. Uh, a few years ago, 
the, the Park Service decided to take on an environmental impact statement to see about reintroducing the grizzly to the North Cascades, and now we're waiting that we're awaiting the final decision on that. But that's a that's controversial, right? Because we all know that if the grizzly is reintroduced, we're going to experience some trail closures at times. People aren't too happy about that. Um, other people are just really concerned about where the grizzlies are going to live and the impact on livestock and range and on human, uh, you know, just movement throughout the North Cascades. So there's that's a controversial one. I think that's that's a that's another big issue coming in the future. Absolutely. And my dad doesn't like grizzlies. That's why he went outside. <coughs> um, yeah. Another thing I actually learned from somebody here in the room. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys uh, listen to the podcast on a regular basis, but uh, I I was up with a crew and we did the Northern Terminus uh, at the PCT. And uh, Shannon's here and Jeremy's here and Lauren's here that were on that crew as well. And uh, and Lauren told me a story about the beetles. Uh, the the tree the, how they ruin the trees right, right. and and the, the yeah okay all right yeah. the pine, pine, pine beetles bark beetles yeah. pine needles pine beetles mm-hmm. all right well anyway that uh, that one of the reasons why they uh, have been able to spread so much is because it, it doesn't get cold enough a lot of times they'll they'll die off if it gets too cold so yeah that's another fear too right I mean. Yeah, and I think, um, and the interesting thing about the pine bark beetle infestation, of course, they kill trees and then those trees become tinder for fires. But pine bark beetles are not invasive. They they are native beetles here. It's just that since the conditions are changing, their habits are changing. They're evolving to take advantage of these new conditions. And so that just adds more layers of kind of complexity to the impact of climate change. And I, d- I would add just one more um, sort of issue that... No. The, oh, please. No, I'm just kidding. Please. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, um, the other challenge in the North Cascades, um, and it's it hasn't been felt too much yet, but it's getting there, is uh, visitation, frankly. All the national parks are, are facing this, all of our public lands. We're, we're sort of in this very similar situation to the, to the 1950s and 1960s when people felt like the national parks were being sort of run over. The, the infrastructure was crumbling, bridges, trails, you know, visitor centers, and there was a big um, federal program to rebuild the infrastructure in the parks. And now, in, in 2016, uh, when the National Park Service celebrated its centennial, um, visitation in all of the national parks spiked. And so that year, the national park system received 330 million visits, or one visit for every person in the country. That's a lot of pressure on those on those places. And here in the North Cascades, so I was, I was up in the North Cascades for um, three weeks in 2016 as a creative resident for the North Cascades Institute. This was a, a really cool gig, like hike and write about it. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, but, but I was talking to some rangers up there at the time, and they told me that their visitation was up 20% over the pri- prior year. And we know that most visitors to the North Cascades, and in fact to all national parks, stay on pavement. 95, 97% of park visitors never leave pavement. Um, right, but that's actually like that's pretty good, you guys, because it means they're not out on the trail with us. I mean, yeah. they're 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 at the visitor center and the paved trails, and that that's great, and that's how most people experience their parks. There's nothing wrong with that, but. When you have many more people visiting a place like the North Cascades, when you have a 20% spike, and then I was up there in 2017, and visitation was already up 15% over the prior year, and it was up again this year. So when that happens, and you have more people in the front country at the visitor centers, right, at the pullouts, all of these places, then you need rangers there. 
you have to have rangers where the people are. And so what that could mean in the North Cascades is fewer backcountry patrols because the bulk of the visitation is happening in the front country. And the part it's really a challenge for park management, especially in the North Cascades, which is very much a backcountry-oriented park, a wilderness-oriented park, to pull people out and say, we need you up front to deal with the people who don't know where to park their car or who you know, need some advice on where to stay. If you're a backcountry ranger, you already know that that maybe is not what you hoped to be doing. Um, and so, yeah. you know, that's just, that's really a challenge is how are you going to manage your, the park, the very limited park resources to handle this increase of visitation. That's happening across all national parks and the North Cascades is no exception. Oh, yeah. And uh, <coughs> so moving on then, uh, kind of talking about, now we're on Highway 20 right here. Birdsview Brewery sits on Highway 20. And we're only about, I don't know, say 50 miles from the North Cascades National Park. So I would go ahead and assume that everybody here has been to the North Cascades National Park and probably, probably frequented it. Um, yes. So uh, that's why this book is such a good tie-in to, to hear the history. But for those listening at home, and I am going to duck out and go to the bathroom right after asking this question, which I do at home sometimes when I'm talking to Shannon especially. I ask her, she just goes off forever, and Lauren's good at that too. Um, so... Uh, uh, let's, let's say somebody's listening to the show and they plan on coming to the North Cascades uh, and they've never been. Why should they, you know, what should they do, go, go do? Which, oh, I'm so tempted to call Shannon up here to help me answer this question, right? Uh, so, um, so they've never been here and what should they do, right? So I'll just build off my last answer, right? Figuring that most people who are coming are coming in cars and they're going to stay pretty close to the North Cascades Highway. And since I get this time to fill, I will just point out that, in fact, <laughs> the North Cascades Highway, which was um, finally, it was completed uh, in 1972, it was paved in 1972, but it was actually finished in 1968, just a few days before the park bill was signed into law. And so the highway is managed by the state of Washington, as I mentioned. Uh, the governor at the time, Dan Evans, was insistent on the state maintaining the highway. Um, so when you go up to New Halem and you see the huge uh, wash dot, you know, facility with the plows and everything, Thing, that's that's why. Um, so I think most people come in on the highway, and the park is pretty much designed that way. It's designed to keep most people in the Ross Lake National Recreation Area and sort of on the um, in in sort of that corridor. Um, now again, most people who come to the park, and I've talked to a number of people from out of state, they don't think that they're in the Ross Lake National Recreation Area. They think they're in North Cascades National Park, and and that's how the parks manage. All the all the recreation areas and the park are managed kind of as one big unit. So. If you are new to this area and you are coming, of course, I recommend that you drive the entire length of the North Cascades Highway, which is one of our great scenic parkways in the country. And I would encourage you to pull out at every single pullout because the view changes every single time. You know, you can go up to um, the Ross Lake Overlook and look all the way down on a clear day and see Hosamine, right? And see Desolation Peak Beyond It, where Jack Kerouac was a fire lookout in the 1950s. You can pull out at the um, Environmental Learning Center and look up at Sourdough Mountain, where the po beat poet Gary Snyder was a fire lookout in the 1950s. Uh, you can climb it if you want, but it's 5,000 feet in five miles, so <laughs> have fun. I will not be joining you. 
Um, there, <laughs> there are also some great trails right off the highway. And so again, like if, you, if, you're, if you're like me, or I think like many people here who like to get out in the backcountry, who would like nothing better than to put on a backpack and leave every, everything else behind, you know, there are great trails to do that. But if you're not, and you just you want to see some interesting things, um, of course, I would recommend Cascade Pass. It is the most popular hike in the park. Um, and with good reason, you can stand at the pass and look down the Cascade River and down the Satikan Valley up to Sahali Arm. And if you feel like it, you can ride, you can hike up to Sahali Arm. Um, my five-year-old's been there. So if you don't think you can do it, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can so. totally do that yeah. one. Um, I also really, uh, I think that, you know, again, if it, depending on your sort of skill level, if you are not a big hiker, there's like a great nature trail right off the highway. You should take that. It shows you Happy a lot Creek. about the fort. Happy Creek, Happy Creek, Happy yeah, Valley. My mom's been there like in a wheelchair, that. too. I love yeah. that trail. Yeah, I think all that stuff is great. I also, though, um, one thing I learned when I was in the North Cascades for three weeks was how important the lakes are as recreation corridors, right? So um, I got to go canoeing on Diablo Lake, which was very cool. But I backpacked up Ross Lake to um, Pumpkin Mountain Backcountry Camp, which is right where Big Beaver Creek comes out. So Big Beaver Creek was really important in the park history, and I was hiking to, to places that were important in the park history. But then I learned, much to my chagrin, I have this backcountry campsite, it's all quiet, it's beautiful, and then I hear, you know, and it's motorboats. They're coming up the lake because there's a boat in camp right there. So I've really hiked seven miles in, it's like, I could have taken a boat <laughs> next time. So there are water taxis, and you can take a boat all the way up Ross Lake, and then you can take hikes from there. So Big Beaver Creek is this great hike through an, a thousand-year-old unbelievable old-growth cedar forest. Um, and there's 25 feet of elevation gain in five miles. So there's, it's like there's nothing like that anywhere else in the North Coast. So you can go up Thunder <laughs> Creek, those kind of things. So I, thi I think that kind of stuff is really cool. But the stuff, most people will come on the highway, and so I think that that's what they should focus on. Maybe you want to go down to Ross Dam or something like that and s stay near the highway. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I know, like, we kind of talked about topographic maps already. And when you start zooming in, to the North Cascades National Park, or even just around there, uh, you talk about Thunder Creek, and, and you know you have all these different basins, and just because there's not a hike to it, when you start looking at these, and it's like, you know, mountains, basin, mountains, basin. I mean, it just goes on forever. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure you guys know that already, because you guys are uh, hikers and all. But uh, <laughs> all right, what are some of the things that people who care about the North Cascades can do to help protect it? Um, well, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the very first thing you should do is join the PCTA, the PNTA, and get involved in maintaining these areas any way that you can. Um, many of you already do that, so I kudos to you. I think that's awesome. Um, the Washington Trails Association, uh, and I guess for listeners, I should say the Pacific Northwest Trail Association and the Pacific Crest Trail Association, PCTA. Um, I think all of those organizations are great. So when you get involved in organizations and you learn um, from your involvement, you pass that on. Um, I also think that one of the, it sounds kind of trite, but really one of the best things you can do is get out and experience your North Cascades. Go out there, do your hiking. Because that way when somebody, when you hear something like somebody wants to open a mine or somebody wants to drill, 
you now have a vested interest. So the way we become involved in our public lands is by getting out on our public lands and realizing that they belong to us. They do not belong to the corporations who want to extract those resources. We get the final say. And so I think that's really important too. Um, and then I also think it's, you know, it is really important to just kind of let your elected official knows, elected officials know that these places matter to you, not just your federal elected officials. Um, Senator Maria Cantwell is the minor is the ranking member on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee that administers or manages, you know, land or um, oversees land management, public land management. I, I call our office about every three weeks, either to say you're doing a good job, or hey, I really don't want that road built up in Alaska, and I'm just letting you know. But you're doing a good job. Um, Do you so talk to her personally? No, yeah. no. I leave yeah. a message like everybody else. <laughs> I just <laughs> hi, it's me. No, um, yeah. So, so I really do think it's important. Like you know, sometimes we, th I, I think that sometimes it's easy to take these areas almost for granted. Like they're protected, they're fine, but. They're not. And we've seen with the current administration that even areas we thought were protected are vulnerable. So when the reductions in Bears Ears National Monument, the reduction in Grand Staircase Escalante, I mean, I'm sorry, but three years ago, no one here would have predicted that. No one here. And now we that's going to be fought out in court. So let your elected initials, officials know how you feel about these areas. I think that's so. Use them. Talk about them. Get other people out there. Get other people excited about it. And get involved with groups that work to protect them. And give them a call and tell them, you know Lauren. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the questions I, I sometimes ask people, um, and maybe I should ask your husband this question, but uh, do you have any future plans for any books? I, I do. You don't have to give away any information <laughs> if you're trying to keep it secret. Uh, well, um, I, I am. I'm starting, as you said, this is my 40th event this year, so I'm getting ready to start my next project. Um, and I'm really interested in um, the future of cars in national parks. So I'm a national parks historian, and that really interests me. And I'm, I'm kind of, especially in this era of climate change, and especially with these reports that have come out recently about how. Um, climate change is impacting the parks more than other spaces. It's really hard for me to see how we can continue our history of having national parks just be sort of like cars anywhere kind of zones. Um, and in a, and it's really it's especially difficult because the national parks, especially the big parks in the West, right? Yellowstone, Grand Teton, Yosemite, um, Grand Canyon. Um, these are these are parks that were essentially constructed for cars, for car visitors. Um, and so how are we gonna deal with this when we know that the emissions from cars really um, has an impact in these parks and the visitation? So I was just at the Grand Canyon for the very first time a couple of weeks ago and um, my husband and I went up to the rim and I just went, oh, look at all these people. I mean, there were just, it, it, it kind of freaked me out. I am more used to up here, you know, in the North Cascades where you don't really run into that. Um, so all those people come by car. Those cars are parked somewhere. They're idling somewhere. They're, they use it to get around the parks. What are we going to do about that? We, we have to come up with other solutions. And, and some parks are pioneering new solutions, but I'm kind of curious about that. I'm kind of curious what the, what the future national parks are going to look like since these are areas that were essentially built for cars. So I'm hoping that's going to be my next project. That's cool. So 16 years? God, I hope not. <laughs> I don't think Dave will stand for that. <laughs> uh, we'll be looking for that one. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, I, I want to point out something that uh, I would I didn't know if it was going to come up in the discussion, but uh, without this isn't a question. This is just from me reading the book. 
Um, some of the some of the best parts of the book to me were some of the descriptions of local political fights or local events where people just showed up and they went on for a few days or whatever. I don't know. Has anybody read the book here? Lauren has. I read most of it. Yeah, I'll say that again. Thanks, Jim. Jim went on to water because he got cut off. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, look at yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, so some of those were just really cool to me. It, it, it's it's fun to talk about when she's saying the activism in the fifties and sixties really spearheaded and, and created these these places, and you really get a feel for that when you read the book in those parts. So, anyway, um, so. I just want to say thanks, Lauren, for coming on the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Thank you very much. Josh is going to play this song. I just want to uh, kind of throw it out there. If you guys have heard the episodes, um, Jack Mattingly um, was nice enough to let me use his his song uh, for kind of my theme song, I call it, I guess. Um, And that's the song Tall Grass. So Josh is going to perform that for us, and then uh, Lauren and I will come up and, uh, and have a little podcasting. All right, thanks, guys. Um, Jack is actually a, a pretty good friend of mine. We, uh, we played music together for over 10 years now, and actually, I wrote this song. He Don't let him tell you that he wrote, wrote it. But it really, he's a, I can't say enough good things about that guy. He's just swell dude. All right, so this is Tallgrass.
Thank you guys very much. Thanks for having me.